Hey, we've been going through uh, a series called the Missio Christi, the mission of Christ, looking at what it means that uh, Jesus was sent from the Father, and then how does that apply to us? Because then Jesus says that he's going to send us as his church out into the world. Uh, It's been a great time. You know, last week, Britt was talking about touch, how Jesus went to those who were ostracized from their communities. The week before that, it was, it was nothing of their own accord. Then the week before that, it was the woman caught um, in all kinds of sexual sin and Jesus breaking. We see cultural barriers and sociological barriers and um, just de- obliterating that and going to those who his generation and his religious uh, people, the Israelites, would have rejected. Uh, We've seen him healing people. We've seen him doing miraculous things. We see him preaching with authority. But today we're going to take a little bit of a pause from from focusing on what Jesus did. And we're going to focus on how he did what he did. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you just to turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5. As you find that, let's pray. Lord Jesus, God, we really just thank you, Lord, for what you've called us to. God, we thank you that you've called us to an intimate relationship with you, Lord, where we experience life, God, like none other. God, we praise you that you came humbly, that you saved us when you didn't need to. God, this morning we want to look at your word, God. We want to honor you by studying it, God. We want to know more of who you are, Jesus, and how you did things, Lord. We just pray for the Holy Spirit, God. I pray for the Holy Spirit and just confess that, Lord, without you we can't understand the word. God, I can't preach the word without you. And so we invite you, Lord, to come and be here, to fill this room, Lord, with your presence and with your glory and with who you are, because we want to meet with you, Lord. We want to touch you, God, and see your face. God, I pray that you'd put a muzzle on my mouth, that I wouldn't say anything that's not of you. And I pray that you would release by your spirit the truth of your word, that it would touch our hearts and call us closer to you. We love you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, John 15, 1 through 5. Let's read that. Jesus is uh, speaking here, and he says, I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the true vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Just to get a little bit of context here, this is Jesus speaking. Hopefully we're familiar with that name, Jesus, the Son of God, 
infinite in glory with angels surrounding him, worshiping him, praising him, bringing glory due to his name that he is deserving of, steps out of eternity past and becomes a man. And that first night that he becomes a man, he comes, you know, you would expect the God of the universe, the creator of all to come. You would expect he would come in glory, right? That he would come as the king, that he would come to rule and to reign and have dominion. But what we see in scripture is that Jesus didn't come as any of that, but he came humbly. He was born by a 14-year-old virgin girl. In fact, the night that he was born, her, uh, she and her betrothed husband, Joseph, they didn't even have a room to sleep in, so they had to sleep in a barn. So the God of the universe, we find, spending his first night on earth as a human, sleeping in a barn, but not just a barn, they, they didn't have anywhere to lay him down, so they stick him in a trough. I don't know if you've seen a cow lately, but they're kind of gross. And when they eat, it's even grosser. And I want you to imagine that the hay that they laid him in was probably disgusting. And that's how our God came into this world. He came humbly. For about 30 years after that, we see uh, Jesus, uh, who is the son of a carpenter. We're actually not told very much about him. It's a, uh, a pretty obscure time in his life. The, the, the part that we know of Jesus actually pretty much encapsulates just three, maybe three and a half years. So all of the miracles that you hear about, you read about, all of the amazing things that happen, that happens in three years. That's pretty impressive. Three years change history for the entire world. Three years. In that time, we find in John, the book that we're reading from today, that he is, first of all, in chapter 1, baptized by John the Baptist. And then he immediately starts to call followers to himself. We call those guys the 12 disciples. They were Jesus' closest, most inner circle. They were the ones who followed him everywhere he went. Everything he said, they were there for. Every miracle he performed, they saw. And they followed him. And as, as a teacher and as a rabbi and as a good one, Jesus was teaching them and training them because they would later go on to pioneer the church. As any good teacher does, you see Jesus throughout the Gospels building truths and then performing those truths in either a miraculous sign or some um, amazing teaching and then backing that up and, and teaching his close inner circle about who he was and what he was doing. But they, like most of us, are pretty thick in the head. I know I am. And they didn't get it most of the time. Well, here we find Jesus. It's the last night on earth. This is the Passover. They're in the upper room. And Jesus knows he's going to die the next day. And I want you to just think of the weight of that as, it, as any teacher would if you know that this is your last time to speak to your disciples or the people that you're teaching or training, you know that every single word counts. And so in the Gospel of John, unlike the other Gospels, we see this amazing Scripture passages from John 13 all the way through 17 of Jesus and His last words to His disciples before He dies. 
John 14, he, he talks about the Spirit is going to come. And they're like, what? Where are you going? They don't get it. John chapter 15 is where we find ourselves for today's scripture. And I find this very important because we're in the Missio Christi. We're talking about what it means to go out and be sent by Jesus out into the world. And it's extremely important that we understand that behind our actions has to come an understanding of how that's going to outplay in our life. Where does the power come from to do the things that God is calling us to? And so we pick up in verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. This I am statement is one of a few in the Gospel of John, but he says that I am the true vine. The emphasis there is on true. Um, this is not to say that true as in opposed to that which is false, but rather true in the sense that Jesus is the one, the perfect, essential, and enduring vine before all which, before which all others are but shadows. You see, in Scripture, we see in the Old Testament a lot of times that through prophetic either scriptures where God would give a specific word or actual people, there were things that we refer to in theology as a type of Christ. I'll give you an example of that. Moses. Moses went to Pharaoh, right? Sent by God to Pharaoh, who was holding God's people, the Israelites, captive, right? They were in bondage to Pharaoh. And God sent Moses to Pharaoh, and he said, demanded that, God, that he would set God's people free, to set them free from that bondage and then to take them into the promised land to receive the blessing and the rest of God. In the same way, Jesus, because Moses was just a type of what was to come, Jesus, in a much greater sense, came to earth and he took our captor, the enemy, our flesh and our pride and our sinfulness, which had separated us from God and held us in bondage and separation from God. And he set us free. And now he offers us eternal life in glory with him forever. That is a type of Christ. Another type here specifically that the disciples would immediately reference was the vine. You see, in chapter 14, we find that Jesus was in the upper room talking with the disciples and it ends with, arise let us go from here. Now, this is kind of skeptic um, in thinking, but a lot of scholars think that what happened was Jesus took his disciples out of that upper room and they began to make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane where the high priestly prayer would happen and the disciples would all fall asleep. Well, on that way, they would have surely passed by the temple. And a part of the temple and to the holy place was this large gate with a vine on it and that vine symbolized Israel. Because all through the Old Testament, God refers to Israel as the vine, his vine, which he had planted to bear fruit. They were his vineyard, and he was the gardener. And so, just like Israel was God's vine, which he put in place so that they might be blessed, that they might be a blessing to all the nations we see now Christ saying that he is the ultimate fulfillment of that. You know what? Israel blew it in their vine analogy. In Isaiah 5, verses 1, 2, and 7, he says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. 
My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the host of Israel, house of Israel, excuse me. And the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. In Jeremiah 2, 21, he says, I had planted you like a choice vine, a sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt, wild vine? Ezekiel 15, I'll let you look that up yourself. And Ezekiel 19 are the same. Hosea 10, 1, Psalms 80, 8 through 10, show Israel, who was supposed to be the vine, failing miserably. And so here we come to Christ who says, I am the true vine. And as Israel let you, has let me down and has not done the thing that it was supposed to do with me, abiding in me, you're going to bear a lot of fruit, much fruit. And that which Israel was unable to do with Christ is now possible. He is the true vine. He also names the father in verse 1. He says the father is the vine dresser. Vine dresser is the same thing as a gardener. So the father immediately takes the stage in this parable. And there are two things the father does here. Number one is he takes away all of the branches, it says, that don't bear any fruit. Now, this passage is kind of debatable. Uh, My translation says takes away. Yours might say he uh, cuts off. But to take away is actually from a Greek word called erio. Sorry for my pronunciations. Uh, It's really early, right? It's actually only 7 o'clock in the morning. Um, It has four meanings, okay? The first one is to lift up or pick up. The second is to lift up figuratively, as in lifting up one's eyes or voice. The third is to lift up with added thought of lifting up in order to carry away. So you lift it up to carry it away, picking it up. And the, the last is to remove. Now, most translations use that last definition, to remove but a, tra- a, a, a scholar that I love, one of my favorite commentators is James Montgomery Boyce. And Boyce, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, says he would prefer, and he has a good argument, that that word be translated lifts up. And it's a great implication if that is to be correct. Here's why he has three meanings. Number one, first off, the father is meant to be the caretaker of the vineyard. He just described him as the one who cares for it, who is responsible for nourishing it right? Taking good, good care of it. So for the father to immediately be saved, he's taking care of it, but as soon as there's a branch that's got no grapes on it, he just slices that off. It doesn't quite seem consistent with that. Secondly, uh, I don't, I'm not a, a gardener myself, but if you have a vineyard, I'm told it's often happens that a vines are kind of squirrely, right? And they grow in, in weird ways, and they reach out, and they, they hook onto things like walls, and sometimes they unhook themselves and fall over. And what happens is that vine can actually land on the ground and it can become fruitless. Because a vine, as opposed to like a squash or a pumpkin, right, which grows on the ground, that's where they were made to grow, and a vine grows by hanging, exposure to the sunlight, exposure to the wind, 
It draws its nutrients not directly from the ground, but from the, the vine itself. The branch, if it lays on the ground, will actually die. It will, it will become a non-fruitful element. There, thirdly, he says that when, G, when the, Jesus says that they are, this vine or these branches are in me, he's saying that that directly relates to their salvation, that they're already in Christ, which means they already know Jesus. They've already been set free. So here's the picture that he's painting, and this is what's awesome. The Father now, in this analogy, if we were to take this as he lifts up, is to say that the Father goes through, and he sees those of us who are maybe new in the faith. Maybe you just got saved, and maybe you want to grow, and you want fruit to emanate from your life, but you're like, man, I just got saved. I'm trying to stop smoking pot. <laughs> Or maybe you're trying to get out of a sexually immoral relationship and you're like, oh, I'm really struggling, but there's not a lot of grapefruit, but God is changing me. For God to just come and wipe that out wouldn't be good. What God does do is he comes and he lifts you up. And like at a vineyard, you know, you see those things, they just stretch out for miles. If you, we live, you know, right next to the San Inez Valley, which is so beautiful. You see these long wires stretching almost miles. They take those branches, those thin, weak parts of that vine and they wrap them, they bind them to that wire that they might live and bear fruit. That's for the newbies. And there's some of us who have been walking with the Lord maybe for a while, but like that branch that falls off, you may be fallen into sin. Perhaps you just feel very alienated from the Lord. Perhaps there's not been a lot of fruit lately in your life and you're stuck in the mud. The promise of this verse and what's beautiful is that the Father will come and He will find us in our junk and He will raise us up and He will put you back where you need to be and restore you. That's our God. That's beautiful. The second thing that He does is He says He prunes the branch that does bear fruit. Now, for some of you, you guys are eager beavers out there, and you're doing a lot for the kingdom of God, and it's great, and the Lord is really producing, like a lot of people are getting saved, and a lot of people are growing, and because they're around you, great things are happening in their life, and it's exciting, but like all of us, we need a little bit of pruning every now and then. You know, they didn't have all the insecticides and things that we have today in terms of our gardening or um, farming techniques, but what they did do was go around and as they saw bugs, they would literally strip them off the vine. As they saw uh, weeds growing up, they would pull those out. As they saw moss trying to latch onto the branch or the vine, they would tear that off. And sometimes that's hard. Sometimes it's extremely painful. But in the end, it's for the betterment of the branch. Because there are those parts in our lives that all of us know exist, that are still part of the old life before we knew Christ and our flesh and our sinfulness, those parts that we still are struggling with today. You see, the gospel is that we have been justified freely by His grace, amen? We're declared righteous before a righteous judge, but we also have to live out the rest of this life in a broken, depraved, sinful body. Right? And what we call that process is the process of sanctification, whereby the Lord has, yes, declared us righteous, but day by day and moment by moment, He is pruning us, He is cleansing us, He is freeing us from sins, 
He's getting rid of those parts in us that were causing death, not only to ourselves, but to those who are around us. And he's taking care of that vine. The beautiful part of that is that that's what the Father does. It's his job, is to maintain these things. So often we try to feel like, oh, you know what, I got to fix myself, I got to prune these edges off, I got to get rid of all this junk in me before I could ever go and talk to God. Before I could ever stand in his presence, I have to stop this and stop that and do this and do that. And the the truth of this is you don't see the branch doing anything in this story, right? What's the branch doing? It's abiding. It's just remaining there. You see the Father doing the cleansing. You see Jesus as the vine. He's the sap, the nutrients, and the life that flows into that branch. But the branch itself, our job as Christians and followers of Jesus is to seek Jesus, to find intimacy with Jesus. I like what he says in verse 3. He says, you, talking to the disciples, are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. This again refers to that idea. Look, we're clean. We have been washed by the blood of the Lamb, set free from the sin that used to entangle us. At the same time, we're still sinners. You're going to continue to sin more than you want to. I'm going to continue to sin more than I want to. But Jesus is the one who cleanses us. It's his word that cleansed the disciples. And it's his word that will cleanse us. You know, it'd be, it's funny, when you look at the story of the prodigal son, right? Here's this guy who'd squandered his inheritance. The analogy is surely of God and his relationship to man. And we have squandered our inheritance. And he realizes it at the end of himself that he has wasted all of his money He's totally sexually perverse and messed up, and he's eating pig slop. He has nothing. And he couldn't even clean himself up to go to his father. He's like, look, I'll just live like this and go to my father. It's better to just be a slave in the house of the Lord than to live like I'm living. And what do you see in that amazing parable is that as soon as the father sees that son coming to him, He drops everything, stands up, and it's the only time in the Bible that we see the father run to the prodigal. And he wraps his arms around him, and he takes off his coat, and he puts it around him, and he gives him his signet ring, and he says, let's kill the fatted calf, right? Amazing grace. What once was lost has now been found. And so today, look, if you're anything like me, and you, I spent so many years of my life trying to run the race, the Christian life, working and striving and doing these things for God, thinking that I was somehow going to earn his favor, that I was going to earn the right to stand with him. It's interesting. I don't know if you grew up in a church like I did, but I was taught that you're saved by grace, right? And to go into heaven, just believe in Jesus. I got that part clearly. But the whole rest of the gospel was abused in my circumstance, where it was You got saved by grace, but then the rest of the Christian life is up to you, right? You got to perform now. And so like any people-pleasing kid, I put on my running shoes to perform and run and 
do all the things that I thought I was supposed to do and fulfill all the lists and all the checks and yes, do this and no, I don't do that and performance and performance and performance and some of you might be really good at that. But eventually we reach that point where we realize, man, I, I can't do this. I've been running so long and I'm so far from where I want to be. John 15 is such a blessing to our lives because it takes that pressure off. You don't have to clean yourself up to be with Jesus. The same way that we were saved, we're told that we need to walk in that salvation. We were saved by grace and we are continually saved by grace. And all that Jesus wants is for us to come to him, to find intimacy with him. This is a good message. Verse 4 and 5 says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The analogy here is simple. That branch right? We've been talking, the vine is that part of the plant that goes into the soil and it has its roots and that's where it sucks the water from the rain and the nutrients from the soil up into sap and it goes up through the vine and it connects. There's this connection point with, with the branch that is intimate and it's organic and it's a union where two parts become one part and the life and the sap that is in the vine flows freely into the branch and then it freely and easily, naturally bears fruit. Maybe you're not just running and striving so that you can be good enough for God, but maybe you're running and striving so that you can have fruit in your life. You don't see a branch running. It's a really slow process. In fact, you just see a branch sitting there, waving around sometimes in the wind, helpless, and weak. And that's what we are. Jesus says that we're to abide in him. And just like if we were to go out into that vineyard and take a saw and hack that union right in the center and cut off that branch, what would happen? That branch, it's gone. It's dead. It's got, you know, a matter of minutes, maybe hours of, of life left before it's done. That sap will eventually dry out. It will eventually have no life, no power, no fruit. It's a simple analogy in that if you or if I disconnect ourselves from Jesus Christ, nothing can come of our lives. The definition of abide in a, a dictionary, a, a theological dictionary called the Zodiades is to be and remain united with him, one with him in heart and mind and will. This is an intimate and organic union between us and Jesus Christ. As I read this story, it becomes very apparent that I can identify with the branch. The older I get, I feel like the more I identify with the branch. When I was younger, I was a pretty cocky kid. We thought I could do a lot of great things for God. And I used to watch Billy Graham 
crusades, and I was like, I'm going to go be the next Billy Graham. And you know where it got me was absolutely nowhere. And I'd try to preach, and nothing good would come of it because I was doing it all in my own strength. I knew Jesus, and I saw Jesus as ruling and reigning from heaven, but like I said, I was very far and distant from him. I figured I was supposed to do everything for him like he was watching me. I didn't understand that not only could I not do the very thing I wanted to do, but I was missing out on the most beautiful and amazing part of the Christian life, intimacy with Jesus, where his life becomes my life, where I begin to draw from the bank of who he is, and I start to find my identity in who he is and not what I do, but who I am in him, not what I do for him. I begin to find purpose in him. But what it shows in this analogy is that as fragile branches, we're not, we don't really have much to offer, right? As much as we wish we could, as much as we wish we could do good things for God, and there's a lot of great books out there on how you can do that, self-help, do these 10 things and you'll be a great Christian and be all that you can be and have your best life right now by what you do. Well, we're not going to sell any of those books out in the lobby. Sorry. Barnes & Noble has a ton. Because what we find in the gospel is the opposite. Whoever wants to find his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life, he'll find it. And Jesus is calling us in this analogy to humility. I love Andrew Murray's book. It's titled Humility. It's like 80 pages and it's really small and has really big print. So you can read it in like an hour. It's a real good for your ego if you have a hard time reading like me. So get it and read it. Read it every day. It only takes an hour. Big words, huge print. Um, but Andrew Murray defines humility as this. It's total dependence on God for everything. Total dependence on God for everything. You see in this verse, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. So a lot of fruit comes from remaining in him, but apart from me, you can do Nothing. <laughs> The Greek there, if you want to really dive into that word, it means no thing. It's a tough one. <laughs> you can't do anything without Jesus Christ. Nothing that is lasting. Nothing that's going to go out throughout eternity that has any significance. And yeah, you know what? On the world standards, we might do a lot of great things. You might get a great big house and a nice car and a lot of stuff that people admire, but we know that one day that stuff is just going to get smoked and what's going to last is the stuff that passes through that refiner's fire. And that's the fruit of our lives. doesn't matter what size your house is. That's why Jesus says, whoever wants to be the greatest must become the least. At first shall be last. In the kingdom of God, it's upside down. It's totally different than what the world thinks. In fact, the disciples asked Jesus, hey, what do we do to become the greatest in the kingdom? And he picks out this child and he says, whoever wants to 
humble himself like this child will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Did he just throw that out there? Was he saying, you know, you need to whine and cry and like a little baby? No, a baby or a child is completely dependent on their parents for everything, right? Their food, their shelter, their finances, everything. And so it begs the question, are we humbly going to God with complete dependence for everything? It isn't until we realize that we are totally incapable of anything and nothing apart from Christ that we start to experience that freedom and that indwelling life of Christ. I love this quote by Martin Luther. It says, God created the world out of nothing, and as long as we are nothing, he can make something out of us. Here's humility. It recognizes, first of all, that Jesus is the vine and we're not. You know, he says that twice. I'm the vine and you're the branch. And he says it again. I'm the vine, you're the branch. But so often we want to replace that and just say, I'm the vine, I'm responsible, me and my pride, and I just use you when I need you, right? But that's not right. He's the vine. We're the branches. Another illustration, and not illustration, but truth is that he is the creator and we are the created You know, it's foolish for us as the created ones of God. We get our very breath that we breathe from Him. Sometimes we think we can get life under our control and we just grasp it hard enough and we're desperate to hang on to that control. But the truth is, we're so out of control. We're not guaranteed the next second on this earth. We can put up all the fences and all the walls and all the barriers that we want, but it's all for nothing because ultimately God, is, God alone is God. We're created by Him. When we look at God as creator and us as created, we start to sense our real identity. I'm a child of God. You're a child. Right? You're a son. You're a daughter of God. You're created by God for His pleasure. That's your identity. That's my identity. That's good. I get a sense of, we get a sense of purpose. With him as our creator, it senses there's a plan, there's a purpose to this life. He created it for a reason, and I purpose is for his glory. And we get a sense of Jesus' mission for our lives and how that purpose relates to us directly and how he's going to use us individually and also as a body. We get a sense of his calling. Humility Um, recognizes Jesus as creator, but humility recognizes that everything in life is about giving Jesus the glory. The Westminster Catechism says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, right? So what's our purpose in life? It's to bring glory to Jesus. Glory due to His name. But you see, If we focus on our own glory, we miss out because God won't share his glory. And just like I, as much as I wanted to do all these great things for God, ended up failing miserably and falling on my face, so we will do time and time again if we try to do these things to make a great name for ourselves or make a great kingdom for ourselves to live in. God is calling us to abandon ourselves. 
and to come humbly like little kids and say, Daddy, Abba, Father, Daddy, I need you. I need you to get through this day. I need you to get through this financial crisis in our country. Maybe you have a really hard time in your marriage right now, and you need to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, apart from you, I can't fix my marriage. You know, the only one who can is Jesus. Maybe you're addicted to some sin. Maybe it's secret. You can't get out of that without Jesus. There's not enough safeguards for you. You need to abide in Jesus. You need to link into him and allow his life. You know what? Jesus loves your spouse more than you can ever ask or imagine to love your spouse. And all those things and those parts of them that drive you nuts, he has grace for those things and love for those things. And he wants to love your spouse through you, but he needs you to be humble and say, Lord, I can't do it. I need you to do it through me. And watch it happen. Like I said, I, I, I used to live my life thinking, man, if I just could do it right and do all these things, I would be right. And it oftentimes came out in evangelism. I worked at Starbucks during my senior year of college. And uh, anybody work at Starbucks in here? That's a wild and crazy place to work. And a lot of funny people work at Starbucks. I was one of them. And um, every day I would go and I was, you know, I was a Moody Bible Institute student, a senior, and I thought I knew everything about evangelism and how to lead people to Jesus. And every day I would go and I would invite them to church and I would tell them about my Savior. And you know what? Nobody got saved. Not one got saved. Bummer. I was on mission, but it was my mission, not his mission. Because deep down in the place that I don't want to admit, I wanted to save them so I could go home and be like, hey, guess what? I led this person to the Lord. Well, during that year, my senior year, everything got wiped out in my life. Closest relationships to me fell apart. My family fell apart, almost just totally destroyed. My health fell apart. Um, a lot of things happened, and it was, it was a series of events that ended up bringing me to my knees, and I came literally to this passage in John 15, and I found those words that, apart from me, you can do nothing, and I realized so quickly that I had been trying to live the Christian life in my own flesh for years. Ten years of my life had been wasted trying to do it for God and not from God. And I came here and I found so much life. I said, yeah, that's true. Apart from you, I can't do anything. I can't fix my family. I can't fix my relationships. And I can't fix my health. So I give up. And that was when the Lord just quietly spoke to me in the best way. Just says, good. <laughs> that's what I've been wanting to hear from you. And suddenly I went to Starbucks and I remember I had this mile walk and I would open. It was 4.30 in the morning in Chicago, downtown, the windy city. It would be negative 75 degrees with wind chill. <laughs> it's literally, you guys have no idea unless you live there, but you breathe in and you have icicles in your nostrils from your snot. It's disgusting. And you breathe out and it melts and it's so gross. I'm freezing and I'm walking to work and I'm just saying, you know what, God, I can't do it. I give up. I can't save those people. If you want to save them, you're going to have to do it through me because I obviously can't. And you know what? 
They got saved. Two, one girl got saved that I've been talking to forever. She comes up to me, had gone through this really crazy time in her life, and was like, I need Jesus. Can I come to your church? I'm like, uh, yeah, totally. <laughs> she goes back to the same workplace and invites a coworker who comes to church and gets saved. My manager contracted HIV in that last semester that I was there, and I had no idea how to love him, and this became my prayer. It was almost like, ironic. Okay, Lord, I can't do this. What do you want to do? And he said, call him. I want you to call him up, and I want you to tell him, I want you to ask him to tell you his story, and then I want you to say, ask him if you can share my story. And I was like, really? You want me to call my manager and tell him, hey, want to share your story with me? And by the way, can I tell you about Jesus and his story? I'm like, I'm going to get fired. (laughs) But the Lord just kept pressing, so I called him, made him up. He's like, yeah, Let's get together. When can we meet? When do you want to do lunch? So I got to go and hear his story and share with him about Jesus, and he was receptive to the gospel. Didn't quite get saved, but praise the Lord, God was moving and still moving. And after I left, he brought other Christians to that Starbucks to continue what he was doing. But you know what? I can firmly look back and say, I had nothing to do with those salvations because when I was trying to have everything to do with it, nothing was happening. But in abiding in Christ and coming to him from a place of, Lord, I can't, but you can, God started to do amazing things. And this is the glory and the wonder and the beauty of this passage, is that as we humble ourselves and we confess with our mouth that we can't, the Lord is so quick to be there and say, okay, now let me do it through you. And just like that branch It doesn't try to grow fruit. It doesn't one day say, okay, I'm going to push really hard and make this thing come out. That doesn't happen. (laughs) It's daylight savings, everybody. Thank you for grace. It doesn't happen that way, right? It's organic and it's slow and it's just natural. That branch does nothing but stay connected to the sap from the vine and it flows through it and naturally fruit comes out and overflows. This is typified in the fruit of the Spirit. I don't read in that passage. This is the fruit of Sean's best efforts. It's the fruit of the Spirit, right? That's the Spirit of God in us naturally overflowing into our communities. We want to be on mission with Christ. We want to see this world turned upside down. Then we have to live as Jesus lives and walk humbly. We talked about him coming into this world humbly as a servant, being born. We see the, the climax or the perfection of humility on the cross. You want to see what true humility is? Look at Jesus. Look at how Jesus lived his life. He took all of our junk on himself, and he didn't have to. And he did it for the Father and for the Father's glory. In fact, quickly, I want to read through these verses in John where Jesus is talking about the way he lived his life. John 5.19, the Son can do nothing by himself. John 5.30, by the way, this is Jesus. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. John 5.41, I do not accept the praise from men. John 6.38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will. John 7.28, I am not here 
on my own. John 8, 28, I do nothing on my own. John 8, 45, I have not come on my own, but he sent me. John 8, 50, I am not seeking glory for myself. John 14, 10, the words I say to you are not just my own. John 14, 24, these words you hear are not my own. Jesus, God, the infinite God-man, lived his life in humility to the glory of God the Father. The things that he said, he said because the Father had spoken them to him. The things that he did, he did because the Father had led him. Found that out in the Samaritan woman, right? He must needs go through Samaria. Why? Because the Father was calling him there. And in this intimate, abiding relationship that Jesus had with the Father, he is now calling us into that same relationship with him. But here's what it requires. It requires humility. It requires that we confess that we can't do it. Strong as we think we are, there is nothing we can do for lasting fruit on this earth that's apart from Jesus Christ. But as we do abide in him, he says it's a promise. You will bear much fruit and it'll be for God's glory and you'll be safe to be used because you won't be full of pride wanting to do it for your own glory. And praise the Lord, it'll be natural. You will find yourself in a restaurant and suddenly the Lord, out of the intimacy that you have with him, will be like, hey, see that girl over there? She's hurting. I want you to go over there and love on her. Rather than you going in and saying, who can I find? Who's my next hit? <laughs> right? Salvation comes about the glory of Jesus, that someone got saved and entered into a relationship with him, not a notch on my belt for my pride. It's humility. Jesus was our perfect example. So I ask you, are we cultivating a life of intimacy with Jesus? And I challenge us, all you need to do is meet with him, get touched by him, fall on your face before him and say those small prayers like, Lord, I, I can't do this, and watch him give you the right words to say. Watch him give you the love that you didn't know you had. Watch him give you the right actions. Watch him call you to a ministry that you never knew was possible. And watch the kingdom of God unfold in our city. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you, Lord. Thank you that you came humbly, Lord. Thank you that you came and you died. And thank you, Lord, that you died that we might be free. We hold on to those words that you came that we might have life and have it to the fullest. And we pray off the wisdom of this world that says that life is found as we achieve a certain status or as we do certain things for ourselves or become a certain name or fame or glorious person. Strip away our pride, God. We don't even know how proud we are. And replace it with humility, Jesus. We can't even do that. It has to come from you. As a body, God, gathered together, we say, we say that we need you. That as a body, we can't do anything. We don't want to be busy about work for work's sake. 
doing good things, Lord. We want to do the God things that you're calling us to, that you're behind, that's for your glory and not ours. And in our personal lives, Jesus, I pray today for restored marriages. Jesus, I pray today against the pride that separates a husband from his wife or a wife from her husband or a child from their parent or a parent from their child. I pray that you would replace broken trust, broken love with with love, with your life, God. You endured more than we even can, can't even fathom. Your last night, right after you shared these intimate words with these guys, they abandoned you, and yet you still love them. You still use them. We want that kind of grace in our lives, Lord. We want that kind of love in our lives, Lord. Be with us, God. Unite us together with you, intimate, as a husband with their wife, giving everything to each other. We want to give everything we have to you and just say, come use us. Bear much fruit through our lives for your glory.